Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, my name is Peggy Doviak, and welcome to the Ask Peggy Show, because prosperity is so much more than money. Well, I have exciting news today. We've expanded the format of the show because we're going to be on more frequently. So instead of the sections that I had on the previous shows, I've added another section called the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update, where I provide stock market information with explanations. Today's market data comes from the close as of Friday, January 19th, 2018. The Dow was 26,071, the NASDAQ 7,336, the S&P 500 was at 2,810. In addition, gold was $1,331 an ounce and oil was $63.57 a barrel. Now, the problem with this data is even though we've heard it a million times, we don't really know what it means. So the Dow went up. What does that mean? What's the Dow in the first place? The Dow Jones Industrial Average is a price-weighted average of 30 major stocks that trade on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Now, the Dow is a very old index. It was invented by Charles Dow in 1896, and it originally tracked 12 industrial companies which is why we call it the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It had companies like the American Cotton Oil Company, the American Sugar Company, and the American Tobacco Company. Now, all of these companies are gone except for one, and there's still one remaining stock that was in the original Dow that's still in it, and that's General Electric. Even though GE has changed over the years and once in a while it's fallen out of the Dow, but it's currently back in the Dow and it looks like it will probably remain there even though they've had some price pressures recently. So the Dow is a price-weighted index and what that means is that expensive stocks in the Dow are weighted more heavily than inexpensive ones. So it will kind of create a skew to the data where just a handful of stocks really control how the Dow moves. So when people talk about the market, they're usually referring to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The problem is this isn't a great measure of the wide American stock market. If you're trying to get a better measure of how large-cap, big companies are doing in the United States, your better bet is the S&P 500, or Standard & Poor's 500, although no one actually refers to it that way. The S&P 500 is an index of the largest 500 U.S. companies that meets the minimum requirements. Now, this index is weighted by market capitalization. Market capitalization is where you take the price of a share of stock and you multiply it by the shares outstanding of that stock. So it becomes not only a function of the price, it also becomes a function of the size of the company. And it might be a slightly better measurement to figure out which companies actually deserve more attention. So 
Because it's diversified, it creates a better measurement of the health of the United States market than the Dow, even though by far the Dow is more popular. So if you're really trying to follow how big American companies are doing, pay some attention to the S&P 500. Now there's a final index called the NASDAQ Composite that's not to be confused with the NASDAQ trading platform. So you have two words that actually, or one word that means two different things. The NASDAQ composite is what's being measured when we're looking at market returns. And the NASDAQ composite is weighted towards technology and computer companies, and it has a real growth focus. The NASDAQ was incredibly popular in the dot-com bubble of the late 90s, right around 2000. Unfortunately, some of the companies in the NASDAQ weren't very sound financially, and as a result, that index took a real beating when that market fell. The NASDAQ has 3,000 companies in it, and it trades electronically rather than having a trading floor with actual market makers on it. Because of its focus, it has a tendency to be riskier than either the Dow or the S&P 500. But if you're really looking at the growth sector and the technology sector in the United States, the NASDAQ is a good index to follow as well. Of course, gold is price per ounce, oil is per barrel. We'll talk more about those on a later show. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. In today's legislative update, by far the biggest story is the shutdown of the United States government. Now, it looks like they're probably going to make a deal today on Monday, and even if something goes wrong, it's likely that there'll be some kind of a solution over the next couple of days. And if that happens, there won't be a lot of direct economic or market impact to what's going on. Now, if, it, if the government shut down for a longer period of time, there could be some implications, but right now, that doesn't look terribly likely. The event, however, is a really good reminder about how important it is to have an emergency fund. An emergency fund is three to six months of non-discretionary bills that you lay back in cash in the bank and you have it available to cover your expenses. The problem with this, as I've said before, is it's really hard to save three months of your bills. So, Again, what I want you to do is start with a two-week emergency fund. So rather than looking at your monthly bills and multiplying them times three or even six, I want you to take that and I want you to divide it by two. So now when you've saved that much money, you have a two-week emergency fund. Well, everyone expects the government to be open within two weeks, but there's many people who, as of this morning, did not know how they were going to be able to pay their bills until things reopened, even if they received back pay. Other things can go wrong. You can have an unexpected layoff or time off or an illness, something where you're not being paid the money you thought you were going to be receiving. If you can have an emergency fund, it takes a little bit of that pressure off so that a bad situation already isn't made worse because you just don't have enough money to pay the bills. 
An unexpected crisis is enough of a problem all by itself. The government shutdown isn't the only legislative story right now, however. Another major issue involves the future of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now, I've talked about this bureau before. It was founded by Elizabeth Warren, and it was designed to help protect consumers from bad financial actors. Well, remember that the agency recently lost its director, Richard Cordray, and President Trump appointed his budget director, Mick Mulvaney, to act as the temporary Consumer Financial Protection Bureau director. He will be replaced, but right now he is the one making the decisions. Well, there's two crises. The biggest short-term crisis is that in the new budget, Mick Mulvaney has requested no, zero, nothing whatsoever, money to fund the Bureau. If the Bureau has no money, he has effectively killed it. When asked why he was wanting to do this, he said that he really thought the money wasn't being well spent and that it would be better to put it against our national debt because he was really worried about the debt. Remember that he was also really in favor of the tax bill. So there is no internal consistency here. Mick Mulvaney has never liked the CFPB because he's never liked their mission statement. However, the other half of the story is he's changed the mission statement. So before he took over, the mission statement that was printed at the bottom of all of the publications that the CFPB put out reads as follows. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is a 21st century agency that helps consumer finance markets work by making rules more effective by consistently and fairly enforcing those rules and by empowering consumers to take more control over their economic lives. So basically what that's saying is the CFPB would make sure that everybody followed the rules, which would give the consumers a chance to make financial decisions within a system that was fair. However, at the end of December, they changed the mission statement. The new mission statement reads as follows. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is a 21st century agency that helps consumer finance markets work by regularly identifying and addressing outdated, unnecessary, or unduly burdensome regulations by making rules more effective, by consistently enforcing federal consumer financial law, and by empowering consumers to take more control over their economic lives. So at the beginning of the mission statement, the primary mission now of the CFPB is to get rid of unduly burdensome regulations for the financial markets. So Maybe, if it's not funded, the consumer isn't losing as much as they would have if it had had the mission of helping the consumers out. It's still too bad to see that Mulvaney is going to make no effort to save this agency that's helped protect consumers from questionable practices by banks and credit card companies and financial firms, leaving the consumers to fend for themselves. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. In this episode's section, Plan Your Prosperity, I'm going to talk to you about individual retirement accounts, or IRAs. And I want to give you some 
overview information about how IRAs are structured and then talk a little bit about one of the most common forms of IRAs, which is the traditional IRA. We'll talk more about IRAs in other episodes, but I think today this will probably give us enough to think about. So when you're looking at funding an IRA, the first thing you need to remember is that you have to have earned income. You can't fund an IRA from a retirement plan distribution. You can fund an IRA from alimony because it counts as income. But you have to have earned income. So in addition to your income, your spouse's income, anything that is taxable to you as the recipient as income counts. The amount you can fund into your IRA is limited by one of two things, either the annual contribution amount or limit, which this year is $5,500 or $6,500 if you're over 50. So they let you put a little bit of extra money back in case you didn't start saving for your retirement in time. So $5,500 or $6,500 if you're over 50, or the amount of earned income that you have. So if you're in a situation and you only earned two or three thousands of thousand dollars, then that's all you can fund into your IRA. Now, I'll tell you that there is an exception to this through something called a spousal IRA, which lets you count your spouse's income toward how much you can contribute into the IRA, even though the spouse earned the money and the IRA is always in an individual's name, so it would be in your name. You also are limited to this dollar amount in whatever kind of IRA you are funding, whether that's a traditional IRA, a non-deductible IRA, or a Roth. So you can't put in $5,500 two or three times. People ask me this regularly. No, it's the total on those individually set up IRAs. There is, again, because this is the tax code and it's complicated, kind of a loophole here that it's important to know about. There are retirement plans that take as their base an IRA structure. I'm not talking about those. I'm only talking about the IRAs that you would set up yourself. You can fund an IRA during the calendar year or up to... April 15th of the next year. So since this is still before April 15th of 2018, if you didn't make a 2017 contribution and you wanted to, you'd still have time to do that. Now, additionally, you could just be funding for your 2018 contribution amount right now as well. So for that first three and a half months of the year, you can either be funding for 2017 or funding for 2018, but you want to be very careful as you do your paperwork that you indicate which year the contribution is for. Remember, an IRA is a vehicle designed to hold investments. The IRA is not actually an investment itself. So sometimes I'll be talking to someone and I'll say, you know, they'll tell me they have investments. Oh, good. What's it invested in? Well, it's invested in an IRA. Well, that's great. What's the IRA invested in? I just told you it's invested in an IRA. And that's when I realize that the person doesn't understand that an IRA is a vehicle. It is a wrapper 
that goes around whatever investments you hold. That wrapper impacts the taxability of the money. The wrapper also impacts a little bit what kind of investments you can put into the account. IRAs don't let you invest in absolutely anything. You can't invest in insurance, you can't invest in collectibles, and you can't invest in loans. Now, let's talk about those a little bit because they're easier to understand if you know why the rule is in place. Why can't you put insurance inside of an IRA? Well, think about the tax implications of an insurance payout. They're always income tax-free. Now, if you have a lot of money, there might be an estate tax issue, but life insurance proceeds are income tax-free. If you put life insurance inside a traditional IRA and you have, you've just set it up to be the normal deductible version, you would owe income tax on that money as you took it out except the insurance was supposed to be income tax-free. So there would be ways around this, but the IRS actually made it easy. They said you can't own insurance inside of an IRA. So that's problem one. Problem two is collectibles. The issue with a collectible is it is worth exactly as much as the person who owns it thinks it ought to be worth. You cannot come up with an overall consensus on the value of a collectible. Now, once you're 70 and a half, you have to take required minimum distributions out of your IRA, unless it's a Roth. If you have to take a distribution, the IRS gives you rules about how to calculate how much distribution to take. So you take your account balance as of December 31st of the previous year, and then that becomes the base that you use to figure out how much your RMD is. If you can't create a value as of December 31st that everyone agrees on, then you can't calculate how much required minimum distribution that you have to take. So you can't do collectibles because there is no way to value them. And then the final thing you can't put inside of an IRA is a loan And that gets into some self-dealing issues that are really complicated, and I really don't think we want to go into a lot of detail on that in today's show. So no insurance, no collectibles, no loans. But that self-dealing leads me to the next thing I want to talk about, which are self-directed IRAs. Now, self-directed IRA is not a brokerage account that you're making your own investment decisions in. Instead, it's kind of this exotic concept that if you're just clever enough, you can put odd things in an IRA and make it work from a tax perspective. Sometimes this is true. Most of the time, it is not. Specifically, most people are trying to put things like land or vehicles inside an IRA. And there is an arm's length transaction requirement that you have to maintain that generally makes it not work. In addition, if you mess this up at all, the IRS is going to be very unhappy with you. There's huge penalties for doing this, and it just feels really iffy to me most of the time. So my recommendation is to be incredibly careful with self-directed IRA concepts. And for the most part, remember that boring is better.
Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. I got some really interesting questions this month for the Ask Peggy section. The first question is Peggy. I don't really understand bonds. Should I own them in my retirement account? Well, if this question sounds like you, don't feel bad because many people don't understand bonds. When you're putting together an investment portfolio, you spend a lot of time deciding whether you should own stocks or mutual funds. Should you own international or sectors? And how do you organize that piece of your portfolio? And I am not suggesting you shouldn't spend that much time on that because they're really important decisions. But then when it comes to the bond piece of the portfolio, you buy an aggregate fund, and as you get older, you know you're supposed to own more of it because it's less risky, but really that's kind of all you know about bond funds. So I would like to clear up some of the mystery and help you understand the advantages, the disadvantages, the characteristics of bonds. First of all, a bond is a loan. And when you buy a bond, you're the lender, not the borrower. For the privilege of using your money, like every other loan, then that borrower has to pay you interest. And in addition, at the end of the term of the loan, they have to pay you back. So when you buy the bond, you give them money, they use the money, they pay you interest, and then they give you your money back. The amount of interest you receive is directly related to how risky the loan is. I always get worried when people say, oh, this must be a great bond. It pays a lot of interest. Well, no, not really. Because when a bond pays a lot of interest, it means that you're taking more risk by lending the money than another investment that might not pay as much interest. So if you're loaning money to an entity, like the United States government, and the probability that you get repaid is very high, then that entity, the government, doesn't have to pay you as much money to get you to make the loan because you're sure you'll get repaid. On the other hand, if you invest in a company that's having some financial difficulties, they may have to pay you more interest to talk you into taking out the loan. So when you're looking at bonds, remember that although yield or interest is very nice to receive, it means you're taking more risk in the investment. Now, this leads to a second important concept about bonds that I'm afraid most people don't understand. I never like to say bonds are safe. Because when we hear that something's safe, we think we can't lose money in it. And that's not true. You can lose money buying bonds. The most obvious way you would lose the money is if you didn't get repaid. So you buy a bond and the entity goes under, like some municipalities have in, in some cases. Then you don't get your money back necessarily unless that bond has some sort of a springing situation to repay its lenders. So that's a possibility. It's not the most likely problem, however, that you'll run into with your experience with bonds with the potential where you might lose money. And to understand this, we need to look a little bit at how bonds work. So typically bonds are issued at par or $1,000. 
They pay a rate of interest. And then at the end of the term of the loan, you get your $1,000 back and you made the interest during the life of the loan. Now, they only sell for $1,000 typically when they're first issued. Then bonds trade on the secondary market in a similar way to stocks. They're not as liquid. It's more complicated, but they trade. So now imagine that you have a bond that you paid $1,000 for. Interest rates were a whopping 3%, let's say, and you own that bond. Now suddenly, interest rates rise to 4% for equivalent bonds. You own a bond that pays 3%. Well, if you hold it until it matures, no big deal, a little opportunity cost. You got 3%, not 4%, but you get your $1,000 back at the end of it. Now, if you need to sell that bond, you won't be able to sell it for $1,000 because someone could buy a brand new bond for $1,000 that pays 4%, your bond pays 3 So how do we fix this? We can't fix the interest it pays, so instead of that, we adjust the price of the bond. So maybe rather than getting $1,000 for your bond, you get $900. So you've lost $100 over that transaction because you can't sell it for the full $1,000. Now, you might have still made money on the deal because maybe you made more money over the life of the bond than what it cost you in what you were expecting to get, but it impacts the value. Where this becomes really critical is when we own bond funds. Remember I just said bonds sell for $1,000 a piece, so most people don't own a lot of real bonds. Most people own bond funds because it's easier to get the diversification and the characteristics to where it's not as risky to own a bond fund as it is to own a bond, since they're very hard to diversify because they're so expensive. But now your problem comes in that bond fund creators or managers trade bonds all the time. So as interest rates go up, if that bond manager is selling bonds within your fund, when they sell the bond, they get less than they necessarily thought they were going to. The value of the fund drops because the bonds in most bond funds actually don't mature and suddenly the bond fund doesn't exist anymore. That happens sometimes, but it's not the common way. So the bond fund exists in perpetuity, bonds move in and out, and the price goes up and down, reflective of a lot of things. So then what can happen? So now that's, that's the natural movement. Now remember, the bond manager would be replacing your bond with a bond that pays 4%. So as they trade them out and they're getting the higher yields in a perfect world, this would all work out. We all know things aren't per perfect. We all know markets are incredibly efficient. And if somebody's been told something is safe and then it goes down in value, people have a tendency to react. So if people see that their bond funds have gone down in value in a rising interest rate environment, then additional selling pressure can make that fund go down even more so that now you have an investment, you thought it was safe, you didn't really understand how it worked, it went down in value, and you're not happy. If you understand how the interest rate environment impacts your bond fund, it will keep you from overreacting when things happen that are just part of the function 
of, op- of owning bonds. Now, when interest rates are falling, exactly backwards happens. But with our current interest rate environment, it seems much more likely that we're in a rising rate environment than a falling rate environment. Now, even though bonds and bond funds can lose money, standard deviation, which is a statistical way of measuring risk, is a lot lower for bonds than it is for stocks, which means that on average, from a volatility perspective, they're less likely to be volatile than the stock market is. Additionally, bonds react to different kinds of pressures than stocks most of the time, and so they can be a good diversifier with a stock because although it has a risk, it has a different risk. Then finally, there's a lot of different kinds of bond funds. It can be really interesting to put together a bond portfolio, but it's important to do your research, really understand what you own. Well, that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you have a question, you could go to the Ask Peggy Facebook page, type in your question, and I'll try to answer it. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.